So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. This is the word of the Lord. So pray with me. Father, we come before you acknowledging some things that we just read, that you are not the God who lives in temples or places. You are not the one who needs as if you need something from us, but you are the one who gives all peoples, us in this room throughout the whole world, life, breath, and all things. And Father, we acknowledge that today. And Lord, we agree and acknowledge as well that Jesus, the words that Jesus said, which were coming out of the Old Testament, which said, and we do not live on bread alone, Father, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this morning, Lord, we acknowledge that. We lay that before you. We ask that you would come and enable, lead us, guide us, and may we see you, acknowledge you, worship you, and walk out knowing just a little bit more about you into the rest of the day. Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I was wondering why actually I felt so comfortable here, because I'm usually freezing um, in places. So, but first of all, I just want to say to start that Lisa and I and our family, we have already been blessed by this community here. And what I mean by that is we are only back about once a year or every few years. And this is kind of the default location where we come. Even though I'm from Wilmington, this is kind of where we come back to. Um, And the community, the teaching, the worship is just a blessing for our family. Um, Now that what, as uh, I was just said, Lisa and I and our family, our three daughters, Michaela, Natalie, and Alia, we primarily live full-time overseas. We live in the Middle East. Uh, We live there purposely for kind of engaging people there in Arabic for the gospel's sake, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And and we do that with Arab-speaking Muslims, secular Muslims, conservative Muslims, primarily, primarily Sunni Muslims, And we also get to interact with a few of these Shiite men and women as well. Now, I know today is 4th of July weekend. And sorry, this is not, as Pastor Paul was saying, a primarily kind of a citizenship kind of focused time from Scripture. But I will tell you this. What we are going to talk about today, the title, Missio Dei, the mission of God, is very much a citizenship message. But it is the message of the expanding citizenship, the naturalization process that the living God has set forth for the whole world, for the growing kingdom 
that is started at the point of the resurrection. That's what we're going to do. Now, today actually is going to be, some of you may have been here last year when I was here, maybe not. Maybe you don't even, the first time you've heard me, but this today is going to kind of be a part two from what we talked about last year. And last year's title was Missio Dei, God on Mission. And it was focused at divine orchestration of God, of how he brings things together. But today we're going to talk about Missio Dei, God's people in that process. All right? Now, but first, I want to introduce you to a typical family, but a typical family where we normally live. A typical family, a gentleman named Abu Ibrahim. Abu meaning the father, Ibrahim, his first son, Abraham, the father of Abu Ibrahim. I, in the Middle East, am Abu Michaela. I'm the father of Michaela, my first child, okay? So, this, and let me set this context here. The context is here. Let's go back in time a little bit. This is 2003, 2004, end of the Iraq War. Abu Ibrahim, he's in his early 50s, mid-50s. He's a construction worker. He's a builder. The Iraq War has ended. If you remember those days, $85 billion was going out to the U.S. to reconstruct Iraq. Reconstruction was happening amazingly. So he went there for work. Now, Abu Ibrahim, he's your typical, moral, conservative, mosque-attending, dish-dash-wearing Muslim man. And he's got three sons. And these three sons are grown. They're in their mid-20s. Some are married. They've got some kids. Okay, this is how Abu Ibrahim is. Well, while he's there working, he's there by himself without his family. So at night, he's doing what typically normal people do, watching some TV. And he's watching satellite TV. And there he comes across this gospel program in Arabic for Muslims to talk about Jesus. Usually kind of a comparison between the Quran and the Bible and who Jesus is. And he watches this night after night after night. And one night one of the speakers come and challenges the listeners to say, we have been talking about this, but Jesus is here for you to grasp and take. So Abu Ibrahim does. He believes and gives himself to Jesus one night. And then for the rest of the time, he gets a Bible. He's spending time reading. He's growing in what it means, and he's so taken by kind of what change is happening within him with other believers he's met there, he actually tattoos himself. Now here, not a big deal. Middle East, not so big tattoos. And he gets a special tattoo. He actually gets a tattoo right on his wrist here of a cross. And this is typically done in Egypt by the Egyptian Coptic Christians. They are Arabs, they are Christians, but they tattoo a cross here purposely to visually show we are not Muslims. We are Christians, though we are Arabs. And he does that. Now work kind of comes to an end and he's coming back and he really wants to get back home because he really is compelled to, to share with his family what has happened in his life. So in typical good Arab fashion, he calls everybody in. His wife is there, he gets all of his kids, their wives, the grandkids, and he proclaims, guys, I follow Jesus. He is God, and he is my Savior. It doesn't quite go, though, the way he was expecting. Remember, his three boys are grown. They're in the 20s. They are also conservative, moral, upstanding, young Muslim men. They explode on their father. Because to them, what he has just done and what he has just visualized is you have turned your back on our community, on our family, on Islam, and you have tarnished our family's name, not only in the community, but through our whole extended family. That's what you've done. 
And the only thing they knew to do at that moment to help that situation was to beat it out of him. And those boys put their father in the hospital. They beat him down. Now, Abu Ibrahim recovers. Yet he doesn't stop interacting with them about Jesus, but he kind of does it a little different way kind of thing. And we're going to stop there with that family, that typical family. We're going to come back to that. But today, we want to start with kind of where we were last year a little bit. We talked about Acts 10, another family in Acts, the family of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, in which he was praying. And what happened was at that point, the Holy Spirit sends an angel to him. And he says, I want you to send some guys down to a guy named Peter, who you don't know. He's 40 miles down south. Call him up, and he's got something to tell you. So he does that. And at the same time, Peter is down south, and he's having a vision. He's having a vision that would prepare him to actually go into the house of Cornelius, because he wouldn't otherwise. So then when he gets there, he finds a group of people sitting there waiting, and they're asking him one question. What's the message you got to tell us? And he tells them the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And we see amazing life change occur in one family at a point in time. And we said last time there were three points of Missio Dei, the mission of God happening there. Number one, we said that the mission of God is God's work himself. It is his work. He owns it. It is willed by the Father, activated by the Son, Jesus, and His completed work, empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit throughout the ages, okay? And we said that, and, and, and Paul agrees with that. He says, there is one but one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who came as a ransom for all, a, the testimony given at the proper time. It is God's work. But we also said in that, that the Holy Spirit brings together the church, the believers in points of time with those who don't yet know all those details purposefully. And the third point we said was why does the Holy Spirit bring believers together with those who don't know yet the details? Because it has been determined in the mission of God that it is the believers who are to be the voice pieces of God. In the Acts story in chapter 10, there was an angel sent. And we said, why didn't the angel just give the details to Cornelius? Because he's not a human, changed by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the role given to the church in Missio Dei. All right? And that is what we're going to kind of get into today more so. But we said, that is still happening today. That's not just a Bible story. The purposeful, timely interactions are happening in Wilmington. And they're happening in the Middle East. So let me go back to Abu Ibrahim. And let's see how this kind of happened. So he recovers from this. He's back in the homes because the sons are actually feeling bad about how they beat their father. Okay? You would think that would happen at some point. And it did. And they, and they kind of allowed him back. But they gave him a condition. They said, you will not speak anymore about this to us. So like I said, Abraham, he's kind of changing his ways. So, but he's doing a very Islamic thing. He's in their homes, and he's in particularly his oldest son's house. And it's getting towards dinner, and his wife, the, the son's wife, Miriam, is fixing and preparing food. Now, a very 
normal Muslim man in this kind of time will sit in a room and have the scriptures. It's usually the Quran. And they will just be reading it through, kind of under their breath, but, you know, people around them can hear what it is. He's not reading the Quran. He's got his Bible. He's reading from the Gospel of John. And he comes to one of the most famous verses in John. And in Arabic it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And at that moment, he's not realizing this. Miriam has heard what he has just said. She stops her preparations, walks over to her father-in-law and says, what, what did you just say? Can you tell me what those words were? And who is saying this? And he says, Miriam, these are the words of Jesus talking about himself, talking about he is the real path of knowing the living God. And she unfolds this story to her father-in-law. She says, I have been having a reoccurring dream for the past few months of a man dressed in white. I cannot see his face, but he is saying those words over and over, and I have no idea what this means. And Abu Rahim at that point becomes very direct. And he says, Miriam, these are the words of Jesus. And he's calling you. He wants you to know him as your savior, as the redeemer for you. And that sets a course for a few more conversations. And Miriam becomes the first in his family to actually follow Jesus as well. Did you see that divine orchestration? You see a, a dream, a man sitting in the room with the Bible, reading at the exact same location. And Miriam could hear him. And it responds. So, now today we want to kind of get a little bit more into this third point from last year, which was we are the mouthpieces. And so we're going to move from Acts 10 to Acts 17 of what we read, okay? And at this point we are here saying that uh, we want to focus on us being ambassadors and witnesses. And as we focus, as, as Acts has moved from 10 to 17, a few things have happened. Now, the focus isn't on Peter and John. The focus is on Paul and where he's going. And he's gone through his first trip. He's into his second trip. And he's had some problems in some of the locations. And that has put him now in Acts 17 in Athens. And if you've been to Athens and if you've been to Mars Hill, you can see where he was put there. And he was talking to the thought leaders. And they brought him there because he was talking about this resurrection. And they wanted to hear more. Okay, now this becomes very important because this is there's two points in here that are very helpful to us in regards of this role that we hold as mouthpieces of the living God. Let me just reread part of what we read. Let's look, let's look at 24, 25, 26. Now the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in the temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We want to focus on 26. This aspect that God's work, a part of it, is setting the boundaries and times at which specific people live. We have been bound to this time, to this place, 
at this time an era of history. And others have been in different ones, right? We see this. We see the results of this truth. If we go to Egypt, we can see the pyramids. We can see that civilization that happened. Take a trip down to to South America, Machu Picchu. You can see the Incas. All these wonders of the world are proofs of certain civilizations, people in certain times and certain boundaries. But these words here in 27, 26, they're not just speaking to this micro level, this macro level, sorry, of peoples and states. They are actually pointing to decisive moments that he has arranged decisive moments for individuals and families to live and in decisive locations. Now, why is that important? Because that means, as believers, specific routine and movements of people are divinely arranged. That means, in our error, in our epoch of time, in our lives, things like going off to school, going to the office, heading out to the beach later today, the parties tomorrow, all the cookouts. They're arranged and known for us at this point in time. That means that the Holy Spirit is arranging these these functions. And actually, you and I have a very distinct role in Missio Dei, in the mission of God. As believers, it also means that as believers, the events and things we have in our life actually have a greater purpose than what we intend for those to be most of the time. There is something else happening if we are aware. This goes back actually to what the scriptures say in Acts 13 when the Holy Spirit called out Paul and Barnabas from the Antioch church. He called them out and said, separate them for me because I have works for which I have called them. Specific places, specific times, specific peoples. And that is a reality that is also still functioning for the believers today. Specific places, specific times, specific interactions. And the the thought of that And the time given to understand that you as a believer, me as a believer, that my existence and my places are directed and purposed by God, you know what that does? That provides a confidence and an anticipation that the God, the Holy Spirit, is actually going to intersect His divine work with my daily routine. He is going to do that. Can I, can I point one thing out? Ambassadors and witnesses, just take ambassadors, secular ambassadors, witnesses, they are both expectant and confident in who they represent. Let me say that again. Ambassadors and witnesses are confident and expectant of who and what the message is that they represent. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been unconfident in a time or a scenario where you had to speak 
I bet we could all think of this. But what about, what about as a believer? The believers that us who are believers here today, have you ever had a context or scenario where you had an opportunity to speak the truths about Jesus and it, that kind of that swell of unconfidence hit kind of thing and you were a little uncertain? Now let's just ask a question. At that moment, if you'd have taken a millisecond in your mind, think back to that scenario, and if you had just thought, on this principle here from verse 26, this time, this place, this person, me, if I'm here alone, the Holy Spirit has arranged that I am the best person. I am the person for this moment. How would have that affected maybe that wave of unconfidence? I, know, I think for me, because I have times like this, I did not think of that at the millisecond. It would have been a boost to that lack of confidence. It probably would have motivated me just one more step of a small sip of faith in that conversation. That's what this says. Okay, let's go back to Abu Ibrahim and his family. Let's go back. So now, Miriam has come to know the Lord. Now, Miriam's husband, Ibrahim. Ibrahim... Abu Ibrahim is not engaging with him directly at all. But he is quietly engaging with him, not with great words or logic. Every time he can, he's telling his son, Son, if you just ask Jesus about what I'm saying, he will show you that it is true. He will answer you. Now, he doesn't teach him how to do it. He doesn't tell him how to ask. He just says, ask him and he will answer, okay? So at the same time, Miriam and Ibrahim have about a three, four-year-old daughter, and she's a normal young kid, right? And she, is, she enjoys playing rough and all this kind of stuff like that, but she's got, this, she's got this right shoulder that is, the ligaments are loose, something happens with this, but anyway, in the midst of playing, a lot of times her shoulder pops out of joint, and it's a continual routine, and obviously when that happens, she is just screaming and flying off the rails, they've got to take her to the doctor, put it back in, sling it for a while, and it is a reoccurring part of her life, and they've been told, listen, a surgery is possible, but this family doesn't have resources for this, they can't really do that, so they're just trying to be careful with her, so one night, this little girl, she's sleeping in the bed, she just kind of rolls over wrong, knocks that shoulder, and she just lets out, she is in pain, Ibrahim comes in there, grabs her up, trying to comfort her. He knows the process. He knows it's not going to be quick. But right then, his father's words pop into his mind. Ibrahim, ask Jesus and he will answer you. So really quickly, he does a quick prayer that says something like, hey, Jesus, my father says you're true and you answer. If that's true, would you help her? And the way Ibrahim will tell this story is that in a little bit, she starts to settle in his arms. She's not crying anymore. Her arm isn't necessarily different or so, but she just kind of quiets, and she falls asleep in his arms, and she settles for kind of that night. And the next morning, they take, him, they take her to the doctor. Everything's the same. They sling it. But then over a period of weeks, Miriam and Ibrahim start to observe she's not it's not popping out of joint very much at this point. Actually, it's not popping out of joint at all over a month or more of time period. And at that point, Ibrahim remembers that night and he goes back to his father and he tells him about what happened. 
And now at this point, Abu Ibrahim again gets direct and says, didn't I tell you? What, what do you think that was? You think that was happenstance? You think that was chance? You asked for something, and something happened. Jesus answers. And that itself led to more conversations. And a, few time, a little bit after that, Ibrahim comes to know Jesus as well with his father. Now, Abu Ibrahim had that confidence that there was a decisive moment coming, and he was paving that way for Ibrahim. He was confident, though he couldn't have theologically told how, he just knew Jesus was going to show up in his son's life, and he was ready for that. The second aspect here, the second truth in Acts 17, in this sermon here for us, as regards to being ambassadors and witnesses, is in verse 27. 27. And it's right after, he says, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps, now in my, I've used the NASB, it says that they might grope for him. I think what we read was to feel for him. To grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. And this second point talks about why. Why is this determination of time and places for specific people? And it is because those times and places and locations have the resources that are right, that are set up, so that those people will have an opportunity to find the living God. They will find the truth of Jesus. It is purposed for them to know him. That's not, that's why. That's why they've been set up. And at the part of that is that inside of people, at every time of history, there is an established compulsion, compelling move, a desire. This grope or feeling is trying to find, to reach out and take hold of the truth of the living God. So the second point is this is that there's a natural, innate desire in every human to hear and know the living God. Doesn't matter how hard someone looks or how beautiful they are, how big, how short. Doesn't matter what type of accent, broken English, full English, different language, skin tone. It doesn't matter from where or who they are. Everyone has a compulsion to know, polished or unpolished. There is compulsion. Now, many times, that isn't seen, right? That doesn't quite see what the situation is. Many times, people seem very put off. They're not interested. They need to give a vibe of even potentially being antagonistic in regards to spiritual things, yeah? And, and that can affect us as ambassadors and witnesses. But these truths, the fact that, we have, that times have been placed... And we know that from the scripture that there is this longing inside of humans, all. Then that puts in front of us actually a really good challenge of faith. It puts in front of the challenge to say, are we going to act on this momentary feeling that is arising in me? And I acknowledge that and I know what that is. Or am I going to purposely take a step of faith in the truths of which I see in scripture that tell me? that this is an opportunity for someone to hear the truth. All right, so now, 
Let me tell you about son number two, Abu Ibrahim. This is Ahmed. You have Ibrahim, Ahmed, and we've got Mahmoud. We have no Muhammads here, all right, which is surprising. All right, so son number two, son number two is he's not married. He's in his young 20s. He is not educated. He doesn't have, a, he doesn't have many skills, but what he does is he, but as a personality, he's very cynical. He's very combative. He's very frustrated with life. And um, in between all of his cynical, snarky statements, his father is telling him, listen, Ahmed, the Lord Jesus will provide for you if you ask him and, and, and look for him for help. He will provide. He is the provider. Now, Ahmed, he actually has a trolley that's a few feet wide here. It's got wheels, and he's a vegetable salesman. And he goes through the, the really small the streets of where we used to live, selling on the street, vegetable. Now, you got to understand something. There's a lot of these guys. He's got a lot of competition. In addition, he's got all the stand standalone vegetable places. So he's got a lot of competition. And he, his, his quality is not always the best compared to other places, right? So he's got some things against him in regards of selling and actually making some money in this. But, and their family, in one sense, lives day to day. This is a part of their life. Okay, but there is also another one of these kind of trolley vegetable guys, and 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 uh, Ahmed, being who he is, knows this guy's a Christian, and he knows he's a Christian because this guy, when he's selling his stuff, he's noticed that he kind of bows his head a little bit, and he'll do a little crucifix over his food, and over himself, and every time he would see that guy do that. Ahmed be like, look at that idiot. Look at that ignorant person who believes in multiple gods and is completely deceived. Look at that. You know, and that's what he'd say. Now, on one day, he's got this, he's got this, he's got a large amount of cucumbers he's got to sell, but he also saw this Christian guy in the morning. He's got similar stock, and he saw him in the morning, and later in that day, he kind of sees him again. But before I tell you about this, understand something about Muslims validation and verification of truth in Muslims' minds are usually based on some sort of tangible success, okay? I believe in the right thing because I have been successful one, two, thing. I have been living the right life because these positive things have happened to me. That's the logic that Muslims work on, okay? And a lot of other people in the world, okay? But so, so it, later that day, Ahmed sees this Christian guy come back, and he is pretty much done for the day. And Ahmed looks at what he's got, and he has hardly had a dent in selling his produce. And this fires him up. Inside of him, he is like, how could this ignorant non-Muslim actually be succeeding more, to, more than me when I am walking according as an upright Muslim? How could this be? And now similar at the same time like Ibrahim, Ahmed hears the voice of his father. If you would ask, Jesus is your provider. So he, sheepishly, kind of does a quick prayer himself. He kind of says, Lord, um, I need some help, and Jesus, if you're a provider, would you help me today? And he kind of looks around, and he kind of does a <laughs> kind of little movement over his food, right? Make sure nobody can see it. 
Well, then he would tell the story, Ahmed would tell the story, that probably within an hour or so, three or four, some other people kind of came by and pretty much bought, not everything, but most of what he had. Now, remember that association that I told you that's in the Muslim's mind? So when that happened, within that quick frame of time, after that prayer, he immediately associates what just happened to the prayer that I just lifted up. And he immediately runs back to his father and he says, hey, tell me the whole story about this. Because how can it be that Jesus actually answers and provides when he's supposed to not be correct and right? And his father goes in and tells him about being the provider. And again, Ahmed, after a few more times, then he comes to know the Lord. Now there's a third story that I'm going to save for if you come Wednesday night. All right? But in all these stories, here's, here's the conclusion. It is very clear that there is distinct coordination of the mission of God, the Holy Spirit arranging times and scenarios. But there is also one key factor to all this that's different than that, in that it, it is the presence of Abu Ahmed. It is the presence of already the one, one believer who has been changed and knows Jesus and speaks directly at those decisive moments in those decisive locations, okay? It is the believer, and he understood that he was there strategically and purposefully. And it is very clear that Jesus speaks to all believers who follow him, that they are to be a part of Missio Dei, the mission of God. Remember these words? John records Jesus saying, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And how about Matthew 28? Another famous one. Go therefore into all the world, disciple, disciple, making disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Missio Dei, the mission of God, is the work of God alone. But Jesus has chosen that it is us, the believers who have been changed and who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit to be the primary means at which the mission of God will continue. Now, there are always exceptions, and we can talk about some exceptions, but that is the primer, primary mode that is very clear. So as witnesses, I want to say, let, let us be confident Let's be anticipating that the life-changing work of the Spirit is going to be happening, and there's going to be arrangement of mine and of your scenarios so that we are in right places, and the people in front of us, no matter how they look or seem or respond, that person has, been, has a compelling desire to know because the Scripture tells us so. Only that reason. And now we are only responsible to tell the truth in a clear and gentle manner, in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the result of that is given unto the Holy Spirit to take that forward. Can I just ask one thing as we finish here, maybe to kind of get this practical into this week. Here's what I would suggest. I, I love being practical. I love being tangible. Here's what I'd say. Take these principles. Pick one day this week one day, and for the whole day, any interaction you have, a planned interaction, an unplanned interaction, 
in that millisecond before that interaction starts, I want you just to ask yourself two questions. Number one, how is he or she longing after God? And why am I here? How is he or she longing after God? And why am I here now? And if you do this, don't forget anybody. Don't forget anybody in that one day. And what I mean by that, if it's the person, if you go to Chick-fil-A, the person hands you the thing, before you take it, you think about that person handing it to you. If it's somebody who is, you're bumping into right in front of you at the grocery store, you're not even just, you just make some eye contact, ask the question. See where that takes those interactions. It may not change anything. It might open something up. But at the end of the day, get together with somebody else and say, hey, I did this. Observe what has happened within you and talk about maybe how those interactions maybe went a little different way than was initially intended. Try it one day, all right, and see what happens. And here, the other thing I would say is, guys, listen, if you're here and you're not a believer, all of what I've been talking to here is, is for the believers. If you're not a believer, you're not convinced, that's not a problem. But let me tell you this, the Holy Spirit has purposed you to be here. He's also purposing things that's coming your way. He knows the times and the locations where you are, and he so wants you to know the details of Jesus. So don't think you're excluded in this as well. Okay? So as we conclude here, let us pray together and look towards the fact that the remainder of today, tomorrow and this week, We have a role and a very significant role to play in Missio Dei, the mission of God. Let's pray. Father, you have arranged that we find ourselves right now in Wilmington. You've arranged times that we will spread from here and go so many different locations and we can't even start to fathom all the places that just this group of people will be. But beyond that, we can't even fathom of your whole church that is spread out through the whole world in all the places, yet the Holy Spirit is arranging and purposing those times. And so, Lord, in that, may we take hold the fact that As the Father sent you, Lord Jesus, you send us. The reality that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit for the purpose for God to make an appeal through us.